Hi everyone, this is Ann Doherty, founder and co-owner of Illum Advising. Today I want to welcome our listeners to another special episode of Current, which is part of our weekly series uh, of conversations as we navigate how the energy industry is responding to and adapting to the coronavirus. As many of you know, COVID-19 in a matter of weeks has radically changed American lives. And more than any other crisis in recent history, this virus has really shaken our sense of safety, security, and well-being. Wherever you're listening from, we want to thank you for joining us and hope that you and your loved ones are staying safe and that you are mentally surviving week four of quarantine that many of us have been in. So every week I'm joined by members of Illum Senior Leadership Team where we discuss our weekly webinar where we cover a number of topics that are covered also in our podcast and in a weekly memo. And we hope uh, that this provides an opportunity for you to stay connected with each other and to remain connected with us. We certainly miss all of you. We also, um, on this week's webinar, where we discussed health impacts and health outcomes associated with energy and energy investments, um, had a special guest, Dr. Ed Vine, who is a renowned authority in our industry um, and is um, an expert in many aspects of climate change and climate science. Um, you should check out our Zoom webinar, and if you don't have access to it and you're hearing about it for the first time through this podcast, please reach out to us and we'll make sure we get it into your hands. Um, today for our podcast, I'm joined by Amanda Dwelly, Technical Director for Quantitative Research at Illum, and I've had the pleasure of working with Amanda for the better part of my career in the energy industry, and um, excited to engage her in this conversation today. Amanda leads Illum's quantitative practice and manages our primary research that's aimed at understanding customer experience, program design, and marketing, and is also known as an expert in behavioral programs and measuring the effects and performance of any number of initiatives that are not easily quantifiable or easily um, parsed out in terms of effects. So Amanda, thank you for joining us on our podcast today. Um, So my first question to you is this, um, your position is that policymakers are singularly focused on COVID-19 um, and particularly the public health crisis surrounding it. And in this moment, energy might be a secondary concern. But the question is, where does this leave climate and energy? Is there an opportunity at this moment to bring health and energy into conversation? Do you feel that there's a link there that we can make? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's such a great question. And I think um, everyone's kind of going back and forth between the short term, where's our focus now and trying to future cast and see where things might be in six to nine months. Um, So on, you know, thinking on two tracks, um, public and policymakers focus right now might be on helping people day to day. Um, But I've been thinking about where priorities might be when in six to nine months um, after pouring so much money and energy into the health and crisis response where that might leave um, not just budgets but public sentiment around um, how to um, invest and support energy. I mean in the U.S. thinking just about the U.S. context. Um, energy efficiency budgets have seemed fairly safe historically because they're usually um, carved out of separate funds um, and are relatively secure, but they still require some, you know, political will and public support to keep that level of investment going. 
Um, so thinking about the short term, within three months, there's clearly a lot of concern about people's ability to pay their bills, including energy bills, how to provide assistance and keep bills down. And I do think there's a small um, and growing appetite for energy savings tips while people are at home, um, especially as people start to see higher and higher bills as, um, as more people are home. And um, as more people are home in their you know, in their home experiencing their environment 24 seven, I'm already starting to hear among social networks, family and friends, um, many more thoughts about indoor air quality, mold, mildew, humidity and ventilation. People are also spending a lot more time cleaning their homes. Um, and then on the business side, I mean, I think we often think of, you know, residential as, you know, the, the side of where this thinking comes. But as businesses come out of crisis mode, um, a lot of business owners and employees are going to be thinking about workforce safety, how to keep themselves and their employees safe, cleaning and hygiene protocols. Um, this is already really critical for healthcare facilities and grocery stores. And I think there were some comments on the webinar yesterday about, you know, is this a good time to um, engage hospitals and healthcare facilities thinking about their ventilation? Um, so, I mean, thinking a little bit longer term, um, it's really a question, I think, of where um, where public where the public and policy makers um, really make a link between health and energy. You know, on the pessimistic side, I, you know, I've heard that these might be in two separate boxes for some people. That public health is in one box and energy and climate is in another box. Um, but then I've heard on the more optimistic side um, that people, you know, are seeing this link, do understand the link between um, climate and energy and health through, um, through air pollution, through ecological change. Um, so I think, you know, the question is if the emphasis um, was on health and economy and those are considered distinct from energy and the environment, um, we might want to reconsider um, what our industry and energy efficiency means to the public and how to position its value, perhaps um, bringing public health concepts front and center, public health benefits front and center. So I've been thinking about how to strengthen that connection from the story and narrative we tell around the benefits of clean energy and energy efficiency. So that's kind of the more pessimistic view that, you know, maybe we do need to strengthen this link. I mean, on the other hand, I think there's certainly lots of chatter and um, commentary that, you know, this great pause we're taking, um, everyone seeing the benefits of cleaner air, um, seeing what happens when the economy grinds to a, fault, um, a halt, unfortunately, you know, is showing, you know, what can happen with the environment, um, what the benefits can be, and also starting to hear calls from local governments, state governments, um, leaders, in the EU about like making sure when we rebuild it's with sustainability and re resilience in mind. Those are all great points, Amanda. And I wanna pick up on um, maybe an optimistic or thread or a silver lining in this. And it is sitting with and thinking about the ways in which we bring those two boxes together, uh, health and energy. In many ways, uh, and you said this in the webinar yesterday, and we discussed this quite a bit, that we tend to have a singular focus in the energy industry on megawatts and megawatt hours, and often fail to recognize 
all of the non-energy benefits, all of the ways in which our programs and our investments in the sector benefit people, people's lives more broadly. So when we think about this moment and we think about the way that health outcomes are being brought into greater focus, how might we um, better measure, better think about our um, the energy effects, essentially, or the energy, the non-energy benefits of our energy investments, mm-hmm. and and specifically as they relate to health. Okay, so to more directly answer your question about health benefits and health metrics, I can say a little bit about some occupant health metrics we've been thinking about. So there's there's definitely a lot of research that certain building and energy actions, certainly not every single energy efficiency program. I don't want to claim that everything makes a difference, but things like building performance, weatherization, um, ventilation, HVAC repair and replacement, anything that manages temperature and humidity um, can all affect um, indoor air quality and health. So um, a lot of these things can reduce indoor air pollutants, particulate matter, combustion byproducts and allergens, which can reduce asthma symptoms and respiratory emergency department visits. Um, And also, you know, managing moisture and reducing mold and mildew are a big part of this. Um, And those are interesting as well, because, you know, unlike air, which is invisible, people might not sense their indoor air quality or know that it could be improved. People certainly do see signs of moisture buildup, mold and mildew in their homes that could be signs of things happening in the building envelope that they can't see. Um, I think there's an opportunity to do a little bit more um, on the education side of that in the the energy space. Um, We've done some research lately getting people to talk about what they do observe in their homes and the steps they've um, taken. So certainly a lot of people are noticing mold and mildew in their homes, and this was in the in the southeast, but it was really interesting to hear the strategies and ideas people have of how to mitigate that, which were just all across the map, um, different cleaning things, and also a lot of questions about how to clean it or how to remove it, but you know, that link of, okay, maybe there's an underlying issue that I could address to prevent that in the future. I don't know if we've made that so clearly, so definitely an opportunity there. Um, And some of these same indoor air quality changes can reduce hypertension, heart disease, um, improve physical health, cognitive performance of people in the home, um, possibly reduce cancer risk, though I'm not an expert on that. And I think, you know, overall emissions levels play a big role there. Um, In the indoor environment, these changes can possibly reduce radon, formaldehyde, lead, and VOCs. But again, a caveat there that there's some energy efficiency actions and products that might actually increase indoor air pollutants, at least in the short term. So, you know, as we start to make these claims about um, health benefits, we should, you know, be careful to understand the materials that are being used and the chemicals that are being used, as well as any dust or particulate matter that can be stirred up. Um, And finally, thinking of benefits, um, you know, we typically talk about um, thermal benefits in terms of comfort, um, but there's also, you know, health considerations. They're reducing extreme temperatures. It can, you know, reduce stress and also um, reduce heat-related illnesses like heat stroke. Amanda, that's um, 
you've given us so much to think about. There are so many directions that we could move with this. And I also love that you called out the ways in which energy um, and energy efficiency measures might impact negatively um, health outcomes. So when we step back from uh, thinking about um, how we, we might bring these two together to think more comprehensively about what we are putting into people's homes, which is, you know, one of the arguments against bringing CFLs into people's homes, people were very concerned about mercury and um, disposal, and the industry spent a lot of time, you know, trying to educate around that and, and um, you know, get people comfortable with that technology, and, uh, and I think that has cast a shadow on LEDs as a result. So if we think about what, what we are asking of people, in a more comprehensive way, then we may be actually be able to provide better products and solutions in general and you know, provide a better service. Um, but as you said, overall and on the whole, most of the measures and actions that we take related to efficiency in the home have benefits at the health level. Uh, one of the things that you talked about uh, yesterday on the webinar that I found really compelling was this idea of getting the data to talk to each other. So, you know, in energy, we're, as you mentioned, singularly focused on um, these metrics of uh, energy metrics, of megawatt hours and, and megawatts, and how those can pretty quickly be translated into any number of other metrics related to um, uh, carbon, but of course also different forms of pollutants, especially if you know where your power is being generated and through what sources. But there are other sources of health data that we might be able to track as well. They're just not in our um, universe, if you will, of, of data that we look at. So when you're thinking about public health, what uh, things might you suggest that we start to track or look for in, in public health data that might mm -hmm. be valuable to us? Yeah, that's such a good question. And we've started to look into this. Um, in relation to legislation in New York under the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act that, um, that you know, kind of challenges the state agencies there to define disadvantaged communities and think about all of the different hazards, risks, and vulnerabilities of people and communities in New York State. And through that process, we've kind of, you know, looked into what um, the, the health departments have and they do have, you know, such a wealth of information at a pretty granular level, though that can be confidential, of, of a wide range of health outcomes. Um, so asthma rates for every age group, you could look at childhood asthma, um, um, you know, an age-adjusted average asthma rate, um, ED visits and hospitalization rates for asthma, COPD, and acute bronchitis, Heat-related emergency department visits um, will be really interesting in the face of climate change, and especially in urban areas. Um, looking at premature deaths, um, you know, I could go on about some of these, um, but I, you know, in many states, there's dashboards of these public health metrics. These are often reported at a county level, but the underlying data might be at a more granular level. Um, and I think the challenge there is really building that collaboration um, with public health departments to um, track and report those metrics um, alongside energy metrics or allow them to be used to look at climate and energy outcomes. 
So how do you create, you know, a policy framework that gets agencies in conversation with each other? Or, you know, starting to, I know we're starting to see a lot of um, programs that do um, combine, you know, public health agencies and energy programs together to offer services together. And those might be places where at um, a micro level, at a program level, um, that level of collaboration could have, you know, start this dialogue between public health and energy, looking at these metrics. Um, and then, of course, there's um, all of the air pollution metrics, um, which are, you know, monitored, you know, could be monitored at the point source, um, could be monitored um, at the overall, well, not monitored over the all level, they're often modeled to the overall level. Um, and I think, you know, I think we're going to talk about this a little bit more later with the idea of distributive justice. But I think, you know, one question is, what are the metrics? And the second question is, what is the level of granularity or type of estimation that people will be looking for in these metrics? And I think we've been you know, providing um, and looking at aggregate level system-wide metrics for a while of overall um, reductions in air pollution emissions, savings, non-energy benefits from a very top-down level with one set of assumptions, but we know that things are very different on a local level. So I think, you know, and the metrics level, it's what are those metrics and then how do we break them down for different geographies and for different populations to see what's really happening um, on the ground. And then, so that I just kind of took that to, you know, the high level, atmospheric level, if you will, but then going back down to what's happening in buildings, I mean, if, if we're arguing that the benefits are happening among participants in buildings, we have to be ready to, um, to track that, to build a baseline there for, for what happens before programs and to start looking at what happens after programs and interventions. And there already is a body of research there, um, but it, you know, it might only be done for programs that specifically targeted public health or health benefits and not necessarily all programs. Um, I think you know, that research is showing that you know, the benefits, some of the benefits I talked about um, are you know stronger among people with pre-existing conditions and among vulnerable populations, which is great. And I think, um, well, you know, great to see benefits going to the right places. Um, so here, I think we need to keep gathering baseline information and um, post-participation information on pre-existing health conditions. Um, this can be sensitive, and I've seen some COVID-19 surveys that just ask about the number of conditions rather than specifics. Um, we've also done some interesting surveys just asking people in an open-ended way about housing conditions or concerns, so things they notice, and that's where we start to hear people noticing mold, mildew, humidity, temperature, swings, allergens. Um, so, you know, we could ask, start to ask people what's going on in their homes, what they notice both before and after. Um, I think, you know, there's a lot of air quality monitoring technology out there. And from what I've heard, some of the indoor air quality um, indicators like carbon monoxide, CO2, and VOCs, these measurements can be really variable based on occupancy and activities in the house like, like cooking. So taking these measurements at any one point in time might not be kind of a definitive picture of what's happening in the home. Um, 
So anyway, I mean, I think these questions haven't been that common in energy surveys in the past, you know, both out of privacy concerns and not needing to make this connection um, either to ourselves or to talk about these benefits. We don't have a great baseline for what people are concerned about and what conditions people are experiencing. Um, but I think this will provide a good opportunity to have that conversation um, and really hear in people's own words what they're seeing and feeling around them in their homes and their businesses, what they're concerned about, both to get the baseline and just to make sure we can address those concerns and build a conversation around it, whether it's educational information and tips or program design. That's so great. And I actually want to move the discussion to the a point that you touched on, which is one of um, distributed justice and metrics and thinking about metrics along those lines. Um, just anecdotally, when I entered the industry in 2007, I uh, was going through a survey instrument that, um, that had been drafted previously uh, as a way of understanding the, the um, different um, metrics or um, elements of the home that were considered in our in our tracking studies in the industry and was shocked to find that there were no demographics in a lot of the instruments in fact um, these large-scale you know hundred multi multi-million dollar studies weren't capturing any information on the occupants so uh, mm -hmm. you know as a trained sociologist um, and um, and social scientists or broadly, it, I was really struck by the way in which um, our our measurements were ignoring people. And as you know, um, that has changed dramatically over the past, you know, 15 years. But um, but there are these gaps in the way that we look at our work and look at how our dollars are being spent, who receives those investments, but also who receives the benefits of those investments. And um, distributive justice is central to that conversation. So I'd be curious to know um, from you, Amanda, as you've been thinking about this, um, how do you think about distributive justice in the energy context and, and the ways in which we are or are not serving vulnerable populations with our work? Yeah, I think we we had been, we are making a lot of progress and I think we were starting to see a lot of momentum um, from, you know, regulations from um, um, legislation as well as from utilities and their stakeholders, you know, years before this in some cases of focusing on vulnerable populations and making sure we're serving everyone. That definitely hasn't been universal. There's been some states that have focused more on that and some that, you know, really that's kind of a taboo subject and no one really wants to look under the rug and actually recognize what the disparities are in who's um, taking advantage of these programs. Um, so, you know, some of the states, um, that I can think of, and I know there's there's many more. California um, started a long time ago. Um, the Cal EnviroScreen um, initiative to identify disadvantaged communities, and they're looking at all sorts of outcomes, including um, air quality outcomes against disadvantaged you know against that disadvantaged communities map um, program outcomes as well. New York's legislation I mentioned, um, Massachusetts. Um, I will mention um, 
has really galvanized around three particular um, um, dimensions of vulnerable populations and really expanding beyond low income to think about um, renters and homes with limited English proficiency. I mean, they're certainly thinking of other things, but in their current through a cycle and plans, they've kind of challenged all programs to think about how to serve renters, limited English proficiency households and and moderate um, and low income households, which I think, you know, represents progress and is just an example of for so long, we just define vulnerable populations as low and moderate income. But I think COVID-19 is really bringing to light how we need to think about so many other um, people. Um, so, you know, older citizens, people with pre-existing conditions, people with a limited internet access. So not just people who have been underserved by energy efficiency programs in the past, but people who might be vulnerable um, to future, you know, shocks, pandemics, natural disasters, whatever else might be coming down um, the pike here. Thanks, Amanda, for that, um, because it's a lot of food for thought. And as we, as uh, folks who are involved in supporting policy and supporting decision-making get more attuned to these disparities and also the links between energy and, and public health, um, it also begs the question, you know, how do we get people to care, your average citizen to care more? Um, so with that, you know, I, I'd like to pose to you, is there a citizenship or participation link that we're missing here? Is there a way we need to get the public to think about the relationship between energy and public health a mm -hmm. little more? Um, so that's such an interesting question. And I've been chewing on that since Victor posed that question to me today. And my immediate response was, well, you know, I don't know of all the things that people have to be concerned about, you know, do we want people spending that limited time they might have on energy or thinking about energy that 10 minutes a year we've always thought that people have do we want them thinking you know big picture policy um, energy and public health um, and my immediate response was you know i don't know if people do have that time to give to energy um, there's so much that people could be doing in their own homes and businesses to improve their environment improve the building envelope i you know i think i might want to you know focus people's attention on on the steps that they can take and what they can do but i think we're in such a unique moment where um, everyone is so focused on one news topic and one set of data it's really amazing how everyone is you know singularly focused on flattening the curve we're all looking at the same metrics we're all looking at hospitalizations and death rates and rating the news that came out yesterday of how COVID-19 deaths are higher among Black and African Americans are higher in areas with um, historically higher air pollution. So there's just tremendous awareness right now of the inequities in COVID-19. Um, and a lot of people are reading about this who probably weren't reading over the past few years about inequality and things like siting regulated facilities or power plants. So, um, so I do think, you know, this this could be an interesting time to, you know, have that dialogue while people are thinking about it, while those inequalities are so top of mind and so real, um, to bring people into conversation um, and help them understand how they can 
um, have a say in the climate of energy agenda, you know, what they might want to do in terms of talking with local representatives, local and state officials. Um, people might not ordinarily have time to talk to their officials, but a lot of people are trying to navigate the system right now, trying to figure out um, what economic incentives are available, get unemployment checks, um, get business loans, really trying to figure out who to talk to, which is also, you know, bringing people into more contact um, with, you know, local local representatives. Um, so, you know, I've been thinking, you know, personally, I don't even know the answer in my community or my state for how to have that discussion, but I think I would love to do that and, and want to time the time for that. Um, and I was also thinking, you know, this idea of us being kind of galvanized around one set of data is interesting and somehow this data is more meaningful to us than all of the charts and data we've had in the past. So, I mean, we have years of data showing this. And I was just reading this interesting um, article in Orion Magazine about Extin Extinction Rebellion, um, which is, um, a, you know, a group that kind of stages street theater performances and kind of dramatic performances of what's going on with species extinction and you know talking about why it works um, extinction rebellion makes the future immediate and now how do you raise the alarm by showing that you are alarmed any self-respecting meerkat knows this no sensible mammal would use an impersonal complicated data set to tell its fellows they are in terrifying danger um, and that just struck me as interesting because you know we have you know gone about thinking that all this data um, that we find, you know, terrifying, showing inequities, showing um, adverse outcomes. We've been using it for a while, but it really hasn't raised the alarm to people. But we are in a state there, you know, unfortunately, people are alarmed. Um, but also that brings opportunity um, to focus on these issues. That's such a, a great point, because I, I think one thing that COVID-19 and climate change share is that we're only as resilient as a, uh, as a population as the least resilient among us, meaning um, the tragedies, the adverse impacts that any population is feeling due to structural violence or historical inequities uh, affect us all, right? That we can't ignore them because ultimately, um, it, you know, they impact these, these, these issues, climate change, public health, um, this pandemic impact us all, and we need to really be tending to those things. So I love your, your thinking around that um, and your example, and also this idea that there are ways that we can act, there are ways that we can think about it, but maybe those solutions are, um, as COVID-19 has shown us, very local in, in how we go about solving them and, and getting active. So with that, I want to thank you, Amanda, for um, just giving us so much to think about. I loved talking about this with you. It was it's fun to pick up on this even after the webinar because there's so much to say. And um, the more we talk about it, there's, the more there is to think about. So I'm sure that our listeners benefit as well. So thank you so much for taking the time to put all of the thought into this work and um, providing that to Illum, but also to our energy community as well. Yeah, thank you. It was great talking. Um, I know this will continue to evolve with many different perspectives coming out and I look forward to, um, to continuing this conversation.
Great, thank you. And then for those of you who are listening, uh, I just want to plug next week's webinar where we're going to be looking at uh, impact evaluations and how to think about collecting information and data in the moment of this pandemic and recession so that you can still measure the effects and investments uh, associated with your programs a year from now. So with that, uh, I will close. Thank you everyone for listening. Um, I'm Ann Doherty and you're listening to Current. Current was created by Loom's production team, music by Blue Dot Sessions. We'll see you next time. Be safe and be well, everyone.